Thank you so much for downloading this episode of So What Do You Really Do, the podcast where I, your host, Dana Dennis Maller, speak to artists and entertainers about their day jobs. And we're continuing both our deep dive into how the COVID-19 experience is affecting the comedians that I know, but also we're going on more about how this is affecting people involved in the medical industry. Specifically, my guest on the podcast today is comedian Emily Raskowski, who is not just a comedian, but also a licensed social worker dealing with uh, mentally developmental teenagers. Um, so that is her industry. So she has seen a lot of how this pandemic and how quarantine and how all of this is not only just affecting the children, but also the families at large. What strains this is putting on her industry, on the medical field? Who is the profit? Who is the gain? Why it is happening? We also talk a lot about politics, too, because Emily has a background in uh, political science as well. Um, so that is, I think it was very important to have her on here because she is somebody who is pretty much on the front lines of this, both her and her co-workers. She's able to see how things are going um, from a slight distance and how certain individuals are being affected by it. And... What, if any, lasting effects this whole thing will have on the industry? Spoiler alert, it will have a lot of lasting effects on it. Uh, we also briefly touched on comedy. Emily has been doing, just like myself, a lot of virtual comedy shows and her opinion on them. And we do uh, talk about how we can make some of these things easier on some other people. And a lot more. And not only is she an incredibly compassionate and amazing human being she's very funny and i'm really glad she took her time to t sit down with me and talk that we did this from a distance and that we have the ability to do that in this day and age so voices like hers um, not only hers can be heard but she can also speak for the voices that can't that are not being heard right now it's for you so please enjoy my conversation with comedian emily raskowski <laughs> I was getting into the, the this. Easy? Yeah. Okay, good. That's why I switched over from all my elaborate equipment to this new software is because it's supposed to be super easy and quick for people. It was the easiest. I've had to do I've had to do Zooms. I've had to do so I've done Zooms, I've done um Skypes. This was the easiest. Like it opened right up. There was no pain in the ass, anything, like done. Okay, good. That's what I like to hear about this. Um well, the first time I try, uh, the first one of these I did through Squadcast was with Dan Martin, and then everything just went to shit. It was a complete and total nightmare for the first like thirty seconds, and then we we got it working. Uh, they don't have support for iPhone yet, which so many people have. Yeah. Um. So that's one of the important things that uh needs to be uh part of it. So. Uh, I know you asked about the camera. Is it cool if I record just a video just as like promo stuff so I can like put a promo video of us talking about one of those things? Are you cool with that? Sure. Yeah. Cool. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm, that, I'm not going to release a whole video podcast. Just like a clip of something you're saying and then like, hey, to hear the full conversation. Sure. All right. Uh, so that's recording. That's recording. That's right. recording. That's recording. All right. All the recorders are going. Uh, all right. So. First and foremost, Emily, uh, I'm glad you were able to connect easily uh, because in this, well, this is the thing. We're two months into uh, this pandemic and yeah. web conferencing is now ubiquitous across all life and, and living. Yeah. However, there's seemingly still people who can't figure these things out. <laughs> like I was in a Zoom webinar and somebody just face planted right into their own camera. And I'm like, how have you 
been a complete and total shut in. How is that possible? So I'm glad for you this was easy and you were able to get and of course you're a little bit smarter than other people. What are you doing? I've had a hard time. I had uh I did a show uh via Skype and I had like a Microsoft account from like 10 years ago <laughs> that like I didn't remember any of the logins because it's an old email address I don't use anymore. And they were like, Oh, well, we're locking that account forever now. And you can't ever access it. So I had to like create a whole new account just with my phone. And I can't like ever have an email account with them or something. And like the tech person was not able to help me at all. So I don't know if I'm like banned from Microsoft (laughs) for life or something. And I can only like sneak in through my phone now. But like you're using bootleg Microsoft Excel sheets. I I felt so stupid. So this like being able to log in very quickly, I was like, oh, I do have a brain. This is great. Well, also, the question we have to ask every single person that we come in contact with is how's everyone doing, which we know is a secret code for are you sick or is someone near you been sick? I do not have coronavirus. No one in my household or my family does knock on wood. Uh, Although my dad has some relatives who uh, both survived it. So he thinks he has like some like magic anti-coronavirus blood. I mean, he's still like (laughs) social distancing and wearing a mask and all that stuff. He's not like the people on the steps of the Capitol with an assault rifle. So he's (laughs) adhering to the guidelines, but He's still like, this is good news for me. I've got anti-corona blood. And I was like, I don't I don't think that's a thing. But maybe it is. Maybe he's right. Wait, his family got coronavirus and survived, yet he thinks he has anti-coronavirus. I think that proves that he's susceptible. <laughs> I mean, it might. You have a good point. But he thinks, if he, he thinks if he gets it, he'll survive because everyone else in his family did. I mean, I sort of hope he's right because I have his blood too. So. <laughs> well, that that is the way fathers and daughters work. Yeah, so. it is. I would. I mean, if if our family has some sort of hardiness that helps us recover, I that would be great. That is something we. That's that, that'll bring the cure, the the vaccine quicker if we just. Hey, can we can we just start. Uh, just draining all the Raskowskis. Just take all the Raskowski bloods. Uh, let's just keep. Let's get <laughs> vats of it, uh, just for testing for yeah. you know, this and other causes or uh, or other diseases. <laughs> sure, I'll donate. Okay, can give everyone Raskowski blood to create cures for things. That sounds good. <laughs> and that, it's interesting you bring up your father because you and I are about the same age, which means our fathers about the same age. Uh, my mm-hmm. dad's my my father would have been seventy one, I think. Um, so I don't think your father's quite that old, but he's in the the danger zone age group. And you're somebody who having and we'll talk uh, about the day job and stuff in a moment. But since you're quarantined with your father, or do you is going out there and, and being asymptomatic and coming home a, a huge concern of yours? No, he's going out more than I am. <laughs> OK, then <laughs> taking, he's over 60. So he's taking advantage of all the grocery store senior hours. OK. And he gets a little stir crazy. So he's been. He's been going out. And again, everybody's been doing the masks and, and my dad's fiance works for the post office. So she's going in every day and has been super, super careful. Um, I think everybody's just, you know, like I think everybody's at risk. We've seen young people die from the virus. I think it's, I think everybody has to take it seriously. It upsets me that everybody doesn't. It upsets me that we we have big crusades against wearing a mask. Like, how much of a baby are you that wearing a mask is is something that's so such an outrageous ask that you're going to protest on the streets of the like on the Capitol steps? Like, calm down. People have had to sacrifice much greater things 
in in the past during times of crisis and the fact that we're just not willing to do it although it happened in 1918 too there was the anti-mask society or whatever they called themselves that people didn't want to wear a mask which i just it just boggles my mind that people are screaming personal freedom and it's like yeah but personal freedom doesn't mean you get to infect and kill everybody else the anti-mask society sounds like the uh straight to dvd sequel to eyes wide shut yeah it's just i i i get so disappointed in humanity right now i mean for many reasons but this is one of them of like god we're so incredibly selfish and lazy and and stupid yeah. One, the one that pushed me over the edge the most was a girl who who wrote this huge post about like the gloves are off and I was like you should keep them on right now there's a pandemic wow. <laughs> she, like she was like you need to respect my sovereign personhood and I was like what Ooh, and I have a right to choose no mask and it's like you don't have a right to potentially infect everyone around you you just don't uh, I mean. Yes, this person sounds like a grade A moron, but also at the same time, A plus sovereign personhood. Oh man, that is a beautiful sentence. Sovereign personhood. It's it's one of those things that's made me irrationally angry because it's just so arrogant and stupid. And like, that'd be fine if masks were to protect you. But the CDC could not be clearer that the masks they're asking the public to wear protect other people in case you are an asymptomatic carrier of the virus at this time. Like it's not about protecting yeah. you. It's about keeping the public safe. You asshole. Yeah, well, one of the things that I always kept saying about the mask is that there's a reason why a surgeon wears a mask during surgery and not the patient. Right. It's so he doesn't infect the open wound his hands are right. in. I, I will say this, though. Uh, when it comes to the protest, I just watched the video this morning of a New York newscaster just walking around an anti-mask protest and just the vitriol hatred people were spitting at him, uh, verbally spitting at him. Just It, it just it blows my mind. And... I, I don't even know, like, obviously it's a POV video of his phone just walking by and people like, you're fake news, you're, you're, you're part of the problem, you're the virus, and going off and off on just an unknown local newscaster. But we know where it comes from. It's top down. Like, the president is encouraging these protests in, there, there's something very nefarious about the way he encouraged the protest too. And this is, I'm going to sound like a wacky conspiracy theorist, but I think it's true. Oh, I love it. Let's do it. The states that he, I think it was three different states that he wrote, like liberate Michigan, liberate Wisconsin. And I think the third one, I think it was Virginia, right? Virginia has Ralph Northam, I think is a Democratic governor. It was Virginia or West Virginia or something like that. It was three states with Democratic governors that he said, liberate these states, like encouraging the protests. And part of what I thought was so nefarious in him doing that, also everything about him is scummy and awful. Yeah. But <laughs> I digress. It, se- it felt to me like a calculated experiment, right? Like, we want to see if things can open up. Push the governors in these states to open up their state. And then if it goes bad, then the governor is to blame. And if it goes well, Trump can claim credit. Look, I got you all back to work. I felt like he was taking a risk and letting people in Democratic states be guinea pigs to see if reopening was okay. And there was a way to do it that the governors would take the fall if it didn't work, which is what he wanted. And then if it did, he could take credit. So he was, I think he was 
sort of basically letting them be the guinea pigs for seeing if, if reopening would cause more infections and deaths while basically screwing the governors over. That's That was my thought. And he may not be that smart, but I think, I think it was a calculated decision there. All right. I think... First off, Adam, conspiracy theories, that is the most plausible and logical (laughs) one I've ever heard. So, man, we should roll back the word on conspiracy theory, because this is definitely not an aluminum foil hat kind of theory. (laughs) This is maybe like cling wrap hat type. So... You're not protecting anything from get, from rays get in. You're just sure. like, yeah, no, let's get these out of here. Let's protect these. Let's yeah. airtight these thoughts instead of like <laughs> protect them from from radio waves. But I I think you're right. I hadn't thought about that. I do like it's so easy to call him an idiot and say he doesn't know what he's doing and that he's a, a moron. All these things, but I, he, honestly, he is so much more. He his. Perception of being incompetent to his um, opposite or to the people that don't like him is his greatest strength. It's easy to write him off, but he's really just so conniving. Yeah. Um, that that and plus he doesn't make all these decisions either. There are definitely other cabinet members who are also like evil plotting supervillains that rub their hands together. So yeah. you're like you have you literally have a legion of doom in the White House that yeah. are coming up with s- plots and schemes and well calculated things like this. So no, I definitely think that is a possibility. I also get frustrated that that every every model, every infectious disease expert, the science, you know, the scientific community all reiterate that the way out of this is through testing and widespread testing is nothing but a good idea is nothing short of a a healthy, safe, productive idea to get us out of this. And Trump has made it very clear, like, listen, we're just not going to have enough tests available for everybody. It's just not going to happen. But he and the, and Mike Pence and everyone in their executive office is getting tested daily. And part of that is they're all refusing to wear masks everywhere, basically. So they're they're getting tests every single day because they won't wear masks and they won't observe social distancing while telling the rest of us, yeah, you're probably never going to be able to get a test. Yeah. But I mean, it, it, I'm glad and, you know you obviously clearly have a lot of thoughts and a lot of opinions on this because you're well, yeah. not just you know somebody who's paying attention to this. You're directly involved with a lot of what's going on right now with this because you are a, a mental health social worker particularly with teenagers. Yep, kids and families in the community. I work with kids from ages 3 to 21 and their families in the community. This is what the interesting thing is is clearly it's an essential position. It's a job, it's a job, but you most of your from what mm-hmm. I understand of your job just through conversation and your hilarious jokes about what you do, majority of your work is spent either in the schools, in the homes and in the hospitals, correct? Yep, so I a few years a couple of years ago I transitioned away from the emergency services division into community-based mental health. So schools, homes, my goal is to try to keep kids yeah. out of the hospitals now. Um, but some of them, you know, do, do go in. But those kids who are getting referred for emergency services all the time, they get referred for our program. Like if you're getting screened all the time and hospitalized all the time, they refer you to our program for ongoing care coordination in the community. So yeah, I'm very involved in that. I also just am, I'm obsessed with politics because my undergraduate degree is in political science and I was a congressional intern. So in my former life before social work, I was uh, a policy wonk kind of. So I dig in and I get obsessed with this stuff and I read everything I can and I get angry about it all the time. But yeah, it is, it is tremendously impacting people, uh, 
in very real ways every day. I think, I think every parent I work with uh, cried on the phone with me the day they announced that schools canceled for the rest of the year. Really? So the canceling of schools have put a huge oh, yeah. mental strain on not just the students, but on the families themselves. Yeah. And it was appropriate. That's the thing I want to stress too, is someone put a thing up on Facebook in a group I'm in called Arise for Social Justice. And um, my friend uh, Kate Nee reposted it from uh, Nancy Domenichelli posted it to this group, Arise for Social Justice. It says, if a medically informed response to a pandemic creates economic hardship so serious that the economic impacts are more deadly than the virus, you change your fucking economic system, not your response to disease. Condemning some to die of a preventable illness so that others don't die of engineered poverty is disgusting. Uh, and then she said, seriously, some of y'all dream so small. Our species can do so much better than this. And I, I really, I really, that spoke to me a lot because I think everything I see and the person who, who said the, uh, my sovereign personhood was like, you don't care about domestic violence victims. You don't care about mental health issues. If you're okay with these quarantine procedures. And it's so not true. The idea of mental and physical health being mutually exclusive and at odds with one another is so incorrect on a fundamental yeah. level. You know, like they have to work together and they intertwine so much. And so I, I really liked this post spoke to me because it, it really said like, no, like with people saying like, fuck it, we'll just let everybody die. And it's like, how and why is that the option? And the option isn't either everyone dies of coronavirus or DV victims die and everyone's mental health deteriorates. Like we can't let that be our either or. Like there's something wrong with our system where during a like employer provided health care is terrible specifically for mental health right i can't imagine a time when you need your therapist more than when you lose your job guilty right here <laughs> you you lose your therapist immediately when you lose your job during a global pandemic people are losing their jobs right yeah so i know someone who just lost his job recently he worked at a company for a really long time like a deck over a decade plus, right? They, I don't want to blow up his spot, uh, but he is a friend of mine, right? A person I'm close to lost his job um, after a really long time with the company. They cut his insurance off the next day after like a decade and a half working at this place, right? No bad reviews, no nothing. They eliminated his job because of coronavirus that's in manufacturing. So lost his insurance that day, had to call the next day, like two days after he got laid off to ask about um, like an unemployment thing and found out that a person at the, the, they were shutting down the building because someone had tested positive for coronavirus. And it turned out it was the person who was checking everyone's temperature to come into the building every day. That's wow. So they laid him off, cut his insurance. And he found out just because he happened to call, they didn't reach out to him to tell him they had exposed him to coronavirus immediately before cutting off his health insurance. Uh, that's just the, the, the irony of that scenario. I think it's the perfect example of how our society works. That's exactly how our society works. Company screws you over, exposes you to something, cuts you off of all of all support. So he said to them, if I get coronavirus, are you guys going to cover me? And the HR person was like, um, I'm not sure. We'll have to talk about that if it comes up. So our system fails everyone. Yeah. We all know this, right? Like, I'm not saying like the fact that we're fighting over physical health versus 
mental health or physical health versus domestic violence victims. Like these are not the, the celebrity death matches that should be happening, right? It shouldn't be, well, either your grandma dies or your neighbor who, whose husband is abusive dies. Like those should not be the options. We, while banks are, are manipulating the bailout money to give Shake Shack a small business loan because they'll get the biggest commission on it. Yeah, I have a friend who had, who applied for the 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 Triple P program and like pay, the payroll insurance program. Yep. And uh, something else. And I'm um, by small business. She's a dog walker, and yeah. she has two employees underneath of her. Like she's who it's designed for. Yeah, and she f- filed and did all the stuff, and they're like, uh, "Sorry, the the fund's actually out of money." Because, and it was supposed to be whoever submitted it first and it wasn't banks rearranged them and, and reprioritized the loans based on the largest amounts. So they, they could reap the biggest commissions. And the fact that that was allowed to happen and the taxpayer dollars funded this is a fucking outrage while we're all losing our health insurance, while we're all being told by the president, go stand on the steps of the Capitol with assault rifles and demand that they get your jobs back, which is also insincere too, because the truth is when the states don't technically open up, they don't have to provide any support to people or businesses. They can say like, well, we don't have to pay you all unemployment anymore because you're technically allowed to go back to work. Well, we don't have to offer any small business assistance because you can technically still open. Yeah, reopening states when it's not safe is a lie to to remove government responsibility to help businesses and people survive. It's a cop-out that looks like we're here for liberty and that's why large interest groups and large PACs are promo- and the president are promoting these protests because it relieves the government of their responsibility to help people through the crisis. Yeah, there is a weird dichotomy right now of people protesting of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And if you look at it on the surface, yeah. But then when you go into the nuances, okay, no, but at the same time, yes. So it is, I, I can't imagine, me, I, I mean, I am somebody who suffers from unbalanced mental health Um yeah, you know, depression. All like, those, like many, many other people. Like many, many other people. Uh, many other people that you're dealing with, and you're on the front lines with these people. So I can't help but imagine how frustrating it is for somebody like you having to try and deal with people. Like you're not a you're not a psychiatrist. I think you're more maintenance programming and stuff like that. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. So I, you know, I we bill insurance. We we work primarily. We work with mass health kids. Um, Because the private insurances didn't want to offer fair contracts for the same services. Uh, They wanted to, like, they're fighting with agencies all the time to provide services. Um, That's why people always get mad that mass health kids get more than their kids. And I'm like, those mass health kids did not decide the benefits available. The rich old suits at uh, your insurance company did. So be mad at them. Um, But, you know, I was really sad to hear that school was canceled for the rest of the year because these kids needed that community connection and they needed that support. But also I don't want them to die. So I am okay with them getting to stay home with their families. Again, we don't have a system that supports people. And even the reopening plan, the fact that daycares and schools are not a part of phase one, how do these parents go back to work? Yeah, and that's I'm sure that's a, a, a added level of stress that you're seeing in your industry is having to deal with now, not just, you know, I'm sure you deal with the parents a lot and it's very stressful for a parent who has a child who is, uh, sure. you know, m- mentally unwell. I don't know what the 
proper way to say it is because I don't want to sound insulting. No, that's fine. Yeah. But so now you're adding, you know, all of this is adding to the stress of the kids. All of this is adding to the stress of the parents. Do you, since the quarantine went in effect, have you had to do more dealing and more helping parents do through coping with some of the situations that are going on? Yeah. I mean, I think we're having to find creative ways to do it. One of the great things uh, Governor Baker did, and I was really happy about this, is he mandated that all insurances approve telehealth services right yes. now. So for the duration of the state of emergency, hopefully some insurances are already being awful and and saying after this date no more telehealth telehealth is a great tool by the way that my agency that i work for is trying to keep in place for after the pandemic because it's a great way to reach folks who um are agoraphobic are like have physical health issues that make it difficult for them to get to their you know their appointments every week particularly like with their therapists with their you know we're an outreach program so we go to homes but for programs that don't, like, wouldn't it be great if you have, you know, if you have MS or you have another physical health issue that makes it really difficult and taxing, like, to go see your therapist once a week is a significant physical struggle. Wouldn't it be great to be able to talk to them on a video chat like this yeah. every week and, and remove that barrier? So we're trying to incorporate that after or for us, for outreach programs, if there's houses that are unsafe because, again, there's a contagious physical illness in the house or someone's severely medically compromised, so having people come in the house is not safe. Or um, there's, a, again, like domestic violence issues where it's not safe for providers to be in the home. What happens to that person? Do you just not get services? With telehealth, you can. So the sort of silver lining of the pandemic is it's showing that telehealth is very doable, is accessible, is easy, it's practical, and it works. So my hope is that agencies and insurance companies will continue to recognize it as a platform and make mental health services more accessible to people who can't get to an office or can't have someone in their home. You know, like if you, a lot of the families we work with don't want to have in-home therapy because they're in a shelter with roommates and they, they share common areas with other families who are going to know all their business because there's no private place for them to meet as a family with their providers. They could bring their computer into their family's bedroom. You know, like the families will sometimes, you know, parent and kids in one yeah. bedroom shared communal space with other families. They could bring the, the laptop or the iPad or their phone into that room and have a private session with their in-home therapy team or their kid's therapist. There's so many reasons why telehealth is important. And my hope is that that stays, but I am thrilled that governor Baker made that a priority sort of right away. Um, it, when he declared the state of emergency is he said insurance companies have to, um, have to approve telehealth services, particularly with regard to mental health, because everyone would have been shut off from their mental health. And I, I really appreciate and respect that he made sure that people would continue to be able to access their mental health providers, because I, I can't imagine a time where they need it more than they do now. Yeah, that's one of the big changes that we're seeing with technology, not just in mental health, but in all industries across the board and just a short couple of years. I mentioned it earlier in another podcast episode, and I'll just briefly touch on it now. Like when I moved here to do traffic reports in the span of one winter, I saw a humongous drop in traffic accidents during snowstorms because in the span of one year, people were able to more, e more easily able to work from home. So they actually heeded the warnings that we kept putting out. It's like, Hey, if you don't have to go to work, don't. And then they did it. Yeah. Like we were expecting a catastrophe on a snowstorm, and it was 
quiet, nothing. It was a ghost town. Uh, and, and, you know, think about just the ability to be able to work from home during a snowstorm. Think of how many more lives you're saving over oh, something like this, where your work is literally saving lives. Now you have the ability to be quicker to outreach and more easily able to access the people that need it. And as a time-saving option, too, I imagine somebody, uh, you know, can see more patients, clients, um, or members or whatever, you know, the industry calls those members. Yeah, without the commute. Without the yeah. commute, without the wait time, without people having to come to you. Like the doc just sit in a room. You know, I did, I've already done one telehealth uh, uh, meeting with my cardiologist. Um, and I was, I kept postponing it because they kept putting in as an option. I was like, look, I know you want me to go do blood work. I haven't seen you in two years. So is this even, you know, if we FaceTime an appointment, is it even worth the time? And he goes, uh, when I said that, I was saying, like, I don't think this is really, you know, just checking in is going to go, no, I can prescribe all your drugs. I can, uh, your medications, I can have them mailed right to your house. I'll set up a time for you to go do blood work. You'll get an email about that paperwork. You can come in and we'll meet again in two months, maybe face to face, maybe again through the phone out. And I was like, okay, yeah, this was the best case scenario. I could have totally yeah, hoped for I was going to say, that's probably the best appointment you had with him in yeah. a long time. And him and I get along great. Like, he loves hearing me joke around and, and do stuff. So, like... But how convenient to have all that available to you. We, we've underutilized technology. I mean, a lot of places just went... We just went to electronic health records within the last year or so, two years. But a lot of places are doing that. We, we need to utilize technology in a way that it increases access. Cause that's, I mean, there's so many horrible things about technology, right? There's so many things that we talk about, like the government's tracking us. And now we know per the, the bill that passed the other day, they they're definitely tracking us. The FBI can look at our phones without, uh, without a warrant, which is terrifying. Uh, but the government, you know, like technology is used to monitor people. This is again, where I sound like a conspiracy <laughs> theorist, but it's true. Uh, the, you know, like the government, monitors or like companies monitor us our phones listen to us all the time i've said things in person to a friend where my phone is in the car and a, an ad for that thing has come up on my my phone the next time i opened facebook like there's a lot of nefarious things about technology one of the beautiful things right or chances for wackos to cyber bully people anonymously all sorts of horrible things but the great things are connection and accessibility and, and I hope we move towards using those more frequently because they're so valuable. Yeah. All right. Uh, we'll go back to, to talking more about the job. But uh, since we're already on the subject of telehealth has been a change to your industry. Yes. During this COVID-19 quarantine, what other than telehealth, what other changes are being enacted or having to start because of the coronavirus? I mean, that's the big one. Okay. Is but but what people don't realize too is insurance companies continue to make a ton of money right now. Yeah. That's who's making money. Healthcare agencies are losing massive amounts of money because all non-essential services have been discontinued. Any and all elect any procedures considered elective, and insurance companies like to consider a lot of things elective because they don't want to pay for them. Yeah. So any elective or, or procedures that can wait have to wait. And there are all these, again, ridiculous conspiracy theories that frustrate me that say like they're letting COVID patients die because they get paid more if they intubate them and then they all die when they intubate them. And 
if you put COVID on a, on a death certificate, the hospital gets paid. A, and like, obviously the hospital does get paid more if they provide more services, but this whole idea that it's like a huge money-making scheme is not correct. <laughs> and, and most healthcare entities besides insurance companies, but most providers are losing massive amounts of money and are furloughing people who work in departments that aren't essential right now or cutting their staff to the bare minimum because it's the only way they can survive. So I think people don't understand like healthcare workers are getting furloughed and laid off. Healthcare workers, healthcare agencies are losing massive amounts of money that they need to operate. And so the healthcare industry, the health insurance industry is doing great. The healthcare provision industry is struggling very significantly right now. And I think people think about like industry, restaurant, entertainment, and all those industries are crippled right now. And I don't want to detract from that, but I think people don't necessarily think of like, when you think of all the stuff that's closed, you don't necessarily think of the dermatologist's office. You don't necessarily think of, you know, the mammogram lab. You don't necessarily think of like things like that. Mammogram techs, people who do, you know, skincare screening, like, these things are, unless they're absolutely emergencies, people haven't been able to get them in the last two months. And all the people who provide those important services are furloughed or laid off or really struggling as well right now. Well, uh, yeah, it, that's, I mean, I'm one of the people that are waiting on an elective surgery. And, you know, that was like when I got furloughed from my job, um, you know, the, the, the depression that hit me was. Yeah was like a, a, a bucket of just non uh, of a nonstop bucket of, of sadness. Um, and one of the things that, and by the way, I got furloughed until August. They're still paying my, their, their portion of my healthcare. I still have to come out with my, uh, I still have to pay mine, but also the, they said, and I have to check on it. Cause now is the time where I'm supposed to check in on this before, <laughs> before I get in trouble. But the, uh, they said that the working with our healthcare provider to see if we can j hold off on our portion, my portion of the payments until I come back to work. And then they'll just like adjust the amount being taken out. Oh, that's awesome. So yeah, I'm in the best case scenario that could have possibly the best worst case scenario that possibly could have happened. Sure. I was dreading going into this, like all the writings was on the wall. The company has been trying to, to get rid of a, my, my department and people and all that stuff. I knew this was going to kind of happen. They at, you know, the company asked for my personal email and not my work email. I'm like, all right, why do you want my personal email? They're like, well, we're just making a list just in case. I'm like, just in case what, when you fire me and I have no longer access to Dennis at company email.com. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, no, by the way, we just want to have a, uh, a, a chat, uh, a video conference chat with everybody on, on Friday. So make sure you're there because it's very important don't miss out i'm like oh are we getting fired no <laughs> yes uh yeah. but so uh but it the what, what you know even though i'm in the best case scenario part of the existential dread for me was you know i have a a, a fist size abdominal hernia now that i've had for almost well now two years um and wow. now that i have healthcare and everything i want to get rid of it you know because it's, sure. it's not yeah it's not it's not life-threatening it's not a bother at all in fact now i can actually sleep uh, like it's so unmuch of a bother now that i'm actually able to sleep on my stomach again if i wanted to and it doesn't hurt and stuff like it's it's just unsightly and it causes me a lot of um um anxiety around vanity and uh, of it and stuff like that uh but immediately i thought like even if i do get to have the surgery it's now at best 
pushed back to fall if I'm even lucky enough to be able to get it then. Mm-hmm. Because once all this insanity stops, you're going to have a huge rush of people who have been waiting around for these elective surgeries. So, most probably much more important than my, you know, my little belly bump. But that's, you know, you're just going to, it's trying to get into that stuff. But some stuff that's considered elective, like, is it? Like, if someone found out they have the, is it the BRCA gene? I think, I don't want to say it correctly, but the breast cancer gene, and they have breast cancer histories in their family, and they elect for a double mastectomy. Is that elective when it's time sensitive? No, yeah, you're right. Is postponing that surgery putting you at risk? Is your skincare check for abnormal moles elective things like cancer or heart issues that like you're like ah it's not if it's not acute right now things that become acute over time now that time is happening yeah so you know like you may not be able to get your your mole check may have been in may and now it's in december and that mole that could have been benign right, is now maybe you were at stage tumor. one and now you're no longer at stage one by the time it gets seen so like and and these aren't things healthcare companies aren't deciding this easily like and they, they're basically being told you know like this is what's essential and this is what's not so like really tough decisions are being made about stuff that you know when people think elective surgeries they're like okay you don't need your nose job right now and it's like yeah. but if you have a deviated septum and sleep apnea, maybe you do. Like, if you can't breathe because of it, maybe you do. Like, people have a lot of sort of, when they think of elective surgery, they think of, like, the real housewives getting stuff done. But but things that are considered elective, insurance companies decide what's elective based on what they do and don't want to pay for and how much they want you to have to pay out of pocket for it. So there's a lot of important healthcare services that aren't happening, and it's crippling the revenue that keeps healthcare companies and healthcare providers running right now, paying for their buildings, paying their staff, paying for equipment, paying for research. Like so much stuff is not happening because the things that, that keep the doors open, you know, mental health is super important, but it's not, it doesn't pay well. And it's not the thing that keeps the doors open for healthcare companies. So we suffer too, you know, like they've, Companies are furloughing mental health workers, redeploying them to different like it's it's tough going right now to to provide services and everybody's struggling. But the answer is not just to let everyone die of coronavirus. Yeah. And on that, you're providing services. How exactly are you providing services now? Whereas before you would go to the school. Yeah, you know, or not just specifically you, but the people in your industry. The school, yeah. if if a kid has a breakdown at school, the school calls you, contacts you, you go to the school, you help the kid. If the family's having problems, they contact you, you go to the home or you go to the hospital, wherever they happen to be. Now we're, like, I got to imagine that masks are priority number one for everybody in your industry because you're in contact with so many people. And it's, is it difficult to maintain social distancing pro, uh, protocols during this time? Yeah, I mean, I think the ER, so I don't, I don't work for the crisis team anymore. A lot of my friends do, but they are one of the few mental health providers that's still interfacing with patients. And so they're trying to be very careful about that and mindful, trying to limit if, if people are available to do a telehealth screening, if it's a possibility, they will do a telehealth screening rather than go to the home. Because, they, you know, if we're going to multiple homes, maybe we go into one home and contract something and bring it into the next home with us. Like, yeah, so we're trying they're trying very hard to limit 
exposure or like if people are coming into the office they're spacing out how many people can be in there at a time they're wearing masks if they're going in for for sessions in the er they're wearing masks the er's are trying to separate covid patients into a specific area that's not in the same area as the the patients who are there for psych evals so everybody's kind of doing their best for my job i'm an ongoing care coordinator for a set group of families so i have like my caseload I talk to them on the phone every, you know, every week or several times a week. We do our conference calls with other providers on the phone or through the telehealth. So basically my whole job can be done via telehealth. And that's what we're doing. The only hiccup is like they haven't gotten the e-signature stuff yet. So I have to mail families their paperwork and have them mail it back. But we're like limiting how many people in, are in the office when. So I'm lucky, but but the the providers that can't do telehealth. For example, a friend of mine works on a COVID positive psych unit. So there's an Jeez. inpatient psychiatric unit that had to create a separate wing for people who are coming in for inpatient psychiatric care that are also COVID positive. Yeah. Now that's walking right and into the front can't lines. Be telehealth. Like you're like, that's no different than being on a COVID positive unit on a medical floor. Yeah. So they're trying to have to like provide psychiatric care, which is different than the medical care because it involves a lot of group work. You can't do a, a group and the days at psych hospitals are very structured. You can't get everyone in the room to do a therapy group when everybody's COVID positive. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's it, and the facilities aren't, you know, it's, it's not like they're very spacious places. Uh, right. Yeah, it's, it's, oh, geez. Their capacity has been cut because typically psych patients are two to a room. And so their capacity has been cut in half because you can only have one patient per room to observe social distancing. And they're having to do groups by Skype. They're having to provide technology so people can Skype into a group therapy session from their room. And they're just they're doing the best they can with with facilities that are not designed to hold infectious disease patients. They're just having a everyone's just having to adapt and figure it out. And that's what we're doing because the service delivery is is so important, and we're not going to just stop doing it. Now, thanks for uh, like protocols for your for your coworker that is working in a corona positive ward. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, have there been different rules and restrictions for people like her who are uh, him or her? What uh, you didn't? Her, yeah. Oh God, yeah. So she has to gown up every day. So she has to gown up every uh, every day. But is she also like restricted from coming from the office? So we're coming into the office on separate days. So she's in the office on a day when nobody else is. Okay. And the building's being sanitized like every couple days. You're only, she's only, we're only going in for like a couple hours at a time. Nobody else is in at the same time. So she's going on on a day when no one else is in. She has her own office. She's sanitizing the office the whole time. But she's living at home with her family. Yeah. So she just, all the healthcare workers, the nurses, the doctors, every the people who work in, in, um, you know, custodial services, anyone who works at the hospital security, anybody who's interfacing or coming in contact with potential contaminants and exposure has to go home to their families every night. So they're, um, they're trying to, she's just trying to be careful. And my agency and some others have uh, like contracted with like colleges in the area that are currently closed to provide housing for people working on COVID units if they can't go home. Yeah, and then I gotta imagine, you know, you're you're in an industry that is already amazingly unfunded, yep. uh, and now we have 
more necessary need for your industry now, which requires more funding. But now you have to add in the uh, uh, the the insane amount of personal protective equipment and sanitation equipment and stuff for the offices that are now. I'm sure. I don't know what the numbers are. You don't. I'm. I, it's not your job to know what the numbers are either. But I'm sure those numbers are doubling or tripling, and that's putting a humongous strain on your industry's budget. How? And again, it's not your answer. You know, this isn't you know where your your area of expertise. But I'm sure you're seeing it with your coworkers or hearing them. Somebody who has to do the budgets and stuff like that. Is that making like? Is it? difficult for them to have to like reallocate other funds to these other things is there i mean yeah and it's hard to get ppe so they're careful that's why they're saying we're closing everything that doesn't need to be my dentist's office is closed because she's like we can't get ppe right now like so they're instead of what you know using the masks on services they're trying to conserve personal protective equipment that's part of why a lot of the um you know the optional and non-essential elective procedures are waiting because they can't spare the PPE for those offices right now. And you can't provide the surfaces without PPE. Like you can't, you know, have people not having access to masks and gloves to do procedures. And so they're just closed down because the proceed, the personal protective equipment has to be reallocated. My office is giving people blocks when they're allowed to come into the office. You have to like sign in and select a time and fill out something about symptoms saying you don't have any symptoms in order to go into the office. And I can imagine uh, going back to earlier, we were talking about all your records are now just now being digitized. Had they put that, had they been more digitized uh, or been digitized earlier, I'm sure a lot of the reason, and I don't know, maybe the reasons you're going to work, I assume is to interface with a lot of that paperwork, whereas majority of what you could be doing from home, if you could just access that stuff digitally. Right. So the it's, it's the telehealth stuff. So our all our records are electronic, but to get signatures, people have to sign on our computer going in through the program. So we don't have an e-signature device because they, they didn't have these telehealth platforms in place. So they contracted, you know, because we have to make sure any telehealth platform we use has to be HIPAA compliant. Yeah. So there's an extra level of encryption so that it can't be hacked so we can protect people's private information. And so they had to decide what to do first. And the first thing was access to care. So the first thing was like, all right, we'll contract with this video conferencing software company. It costs a lot of money to do that for a huge agency. It's a massive contract. So at a time when we've lost huge amounts of money, we have to shell out all this money for telehealth and then shelling out for like an e-signature software is another massive financial commitment that they have to figure out too. So they're not at that point yet. So they're, we're going in just to like print and mail an assessment to have a parent sign and send back to us, but we're limiting our exposure to each other and, and trying to stay as safe as possible while still delivering good care. That's all we can do. As someone who's working in the, in the, the health field who also has to deal a lot with insurance companies and stuff like that. When Katrina hit, the housing insurance market completely changed. First and foremost, the first thing they tried to do was screw everybody over. Like, sorry, not covered. But that sent a humongous shockwave of change through the insurance industry. Do you think that this is the Katrina to the health industry, uh, health insurance industry, where after this we will see in hopes 
more services provided from insurance agencies and stuff like that? Or do you think after this quarantine and everything goes, they're going to roll back a lot of these things like telehealth and, you know, uh, different, you know, pay, uh, accepting different services and stuff like that, in your opinion? They already are. I'm seeing friends who are saying the ins- their insurance company is already saying after this date, you have to go back to in-person services because we're no longer covering telehealth. So my hope is that this is the straw that breaks the camel's back on our private insurance system because it's garbage. Because if there were ever a time to realize health insurance should not be tied to employment, you shouldn't lose access to all of your providers when you most need them after suffering a job loss. You should not have access to your cardiologist and your therapist and the people who can best help you deal with the stress because you lost your job. I, I think this is the best argument for Medicare for all that could possibly exist. And so I desperately hope we get to a place where healthcare is a right and not something you have to purchase. And in your opinion, like that, you know, I agree with you. We should. Do you think, not hope, just looking at the facts and dealing with those people, do you think we have a fighting chance of that happening after that? No, not right now. I don't. I don't think... I think the the Democratic Party is still way too centrist and is afraid to listen to the more progressive voices that are giving us a path forward into more uh, equality and equity in our society. And it it bothers me that we're not there yet. But I think as long as the current people in charge are of the party, as long as the establishment is still in charge, Medicare for all isn't going to happen. I think once we get to a point where the vast majority of our leaders believe in it, We'll get there. I think it's it's necessary to save the lives of Americans and to give everyone a good quality of life. And I think this is this is a time that really proves that is that we everybody needs access to health care. And and we just so blatantly don't have that now. And, and the fact that it's still a for profit industry is insane. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, the fact that it is it, it, for profit industry is insane. However, you could still make a profit and do the right thing amongst people. It's just unfortunately, right, but insurance co- private insurance companies just don't. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the way that is. All right, and there's nothing forcing them to. So, and I would love for people to. I think I think employment can change when you know people, you know people who have medical conditions or health or mental health conditions can't start their own business because they couldn't get health care coverage before. In Massachusetts, we can. It's easier to buy insurance through the health connector. We have one of the better systems. And that Obamacare was based on Romney care. Like the Obamacare model was based on the Massachusetts model. We have more access than other people. But the fact that they're still trying to repeal the pre-existing condition thing boggles my mind. Like, like people were tied to their job forever and could never branch out and and do what they wanted to do because if you had if you have type 1 diabetes you better work for an age you better work for a company that has good health care for the rest of your life or you're fucked and that sucks yeah honestly you know uh, you know we've talked about when i lost my job with iHeartRadio and i decided to take that that opportunity to be a full-time entertainer and when i look back now at 2020 when i started doing my taxes and stuff when i look back at the numbers i was making i was like when you look at the numbers, it's like, oh my god, I'm almost making as much as I was when I was working at iHeart. Mm-hmm. However, the money was so sporadic and everything that my finances didn't help. But the reason why I had to give up all of that is because not just the in- inconsistent finances, but because of this giant hernia that I have now, and it's yep. like I have to find a job with healthcare because I have no possible way of getting this taken care of any other 
situation. So yep. I here's a uh, there's a great if I could have gotten this taken care of like that while being a self-employed full-time entertainer, I would have still been doing it. I would have been sure. I don't know if that's better for worse now looking in hindsight like cuz I, I as soon as all this madness started, I all, my first thought was like thank god this didn't happen last year cuz having to try and prove my income right. when it's coming like like in 2019, I have 10 W-2s and 1099s. Wow, yeah. And it's it's so insane to think about that, trying to go through the, uh, like, you know, I'm lucky. Unemployment worked for me. I was in and out of the website in 20 minutes. I had all the information that I needed to fill out the paperwork to mail with them, which was ridiculous that I had to <laughs> mail paperwork in 2020. Because I had to print out all these forms from digital files because I don't have paper copies of them because they are all sent to me digital. So I sent, and I'm in the best case scenario, but I can't imagine for the people that are in the a much worse position and how they're dealing with all that. And hearing, you know, your area of expertise and hearing how we don't we don't see this as being a, a, a catalyst right. to better things in the future is unfortunately very uh, sad to hear. Um, and I don't want to end on a sad note. Yeah. But it's also okay to face that reality and say like, we don't have to placate ourselves by saying it's going to be okay. If our government isn't going to do anything to make it okay. If the people we pay to run the country aren't, aren't caring about what happens to us. Uh, I mean, and that's the thing that I look at. We, it's so easy to look at the establishment and the politicians and, and all of them to say that, that they're the reason we're in this. And my th- my opinion is it's not them. It's the people of this country. Like when I talked earlier about these people who are just hating on a right. local news reporter just walking through. Not He's not antagonizing. He's not saying anything. He's just walking around filming them and they're going at it. But they've also been empowered by the people in power. Where did they, where did they get fake news? Where did they get the ideas for protests? The protests are being funded by large packs and large donors and and people in dc who are part of a certain political persuasion and movement these these small grassroots protests are being funded like a lot of the facebook groups for open up this state or free this state are funded and started by the same people there's like a a handful of people starting these groups all over the country to raise this grassroots movement and it's it's coming from up top i well i think the reason they're in on top is because those are the people that lifted them right. up to that place. They're just a figurehead for the people that don't want these services that don't want, you know, like I, I got into a, a short, quick argument with a young lady in a, in an Uber pool one night where she was saying um, that they don't care about women's rights. And yes, no people don't. But my argument was it's less about like when Alabama rolled back the, the um, or tried attempted to roll back abortion rights and stuff like that. I was like, they're still trying. They're still trying. Yeah. And it's less that the people, in, in my opinion, and this is a very nuanced opinion. Half a century after Roe v. Wade, by the way. Yeah. Half a century. Uh, God, yeah, it's so weird. Like, I remember in the late 80s figuring out what Roe v. versus Wade now. Now we're still 30 years later from that. But my opinion is, like, when Alabama does things like that, when the right, uh, you know, the, the, the right wing, who, whomever, is trying to do things like that, it's less about actually trying to be controlling of women's rights and more just being antagonizing and and empowering the voices of their own uh, of their own supporters and stuff like that. So it's not like they're seeming like, all right, how can we take away women's rights? I think they're more like, all right, cool. How can we piss off the our, uh, the people who are against us and give a, a, vo- a bigger voices and platforms 
to the people that support our opinions and stuff like that, which is a very nuanced opinion. I, I don't think that's mutually exclusive. I think they also want to control women. And I say this as a woman who's worked in politics, as a woman who's worked in health, like in healthcare and politics, there is a massive movement of people who think if you control women, you can bring this country back to like core Christian values. And there's a large movement of people, evangelicals and the Christian right, who've been given a huge platform to bring back traditional family values and the the core of that is controlling women no you're you know, you bring up a good point on that um so i yeah i i see so much of this stuff in my opinion is just push trying to put a bigger and bigger divide but that's all another conversation that maybe we'll have some other day not on this podcast because it's yeah. very distracting <laughs> from the mental health issues that i wanted to put a spotlight on for for the listeners but I think you did. Yeah. I think I'm I'm appreciative of getting to have this conversation with you. And I think I think people, you know, like we need to understand like our our best interests are not at the heart of these decisions that are being made by the people in charge right now. And I think we we need to be mindful of that. And those of us who work in service provision are trying really hard and people can make it easier for us by adhering to health and safety guidelines. So let's try and end this, you know, show on at least a brighter note because we are both comedians and that is also something that has not stopped is in a lot of danger of being stopped forever because of the quarantine, but it hasn't stopped yet. We're still doing it. I'm doing three or four of these virtual things a week and also just actually just hanging out with other comedians in other towns and cities and countries. I was hanging out with two different comedians from India yesterday in a Zoom meeting, but you've done a couple of virtual shows. How have those gone for you so far? I'm really glad that they're an option because I love comedy and I miss it so much. And I'm so glad that we're finding a way to keep it going uh, in a modified way that's safe for everybody during the pandemic. So I'm really happy that it's available. It's not the same, but, but it's getting us through. And I'm really happy about that. And a lot of people are using the shows to raise money for charity, which is wonderful. And um, so I, I think it's great. Have you now? Well, one of the, the big problems with a lot of these things are people, you know, jumping in on these things and just dropping end bombs or, you know, screen sharing porn and stuff like that. Have you I've ran into a couple of those. They've seemingly have stopped. Judging by the look on your face right now, you haven't had that same experience in your show. I have okay. not. Yeah, no, just there's, there's you know, troll, people trolling and uh, they'll find your Zoom number because somebody will post it or tweet about it. Or actually, at the beginning of this, there was a gigantic uh, vulnerability in Zoom's encryptions that uh, allowed people just to be able to hack right into them directly. However, most people were just getting your meeting numbers and sh- showing up and just trying to roast jokes or roast people or literally the, the number one concept was sharing porn and, and, and dropping the end bomb, uh, just yelling it, screaming it, screaming the F word. Um, or they would, um, since zoom has the feature, you can do a whiteboard. They, if the, if you muted them, they would just bring up the whiteboard because people didn't know to turn these things off and then just start writing the, the words. And it's like, ah, and that's so distracting. So yeah, that's a lot of the, like, the funniest for me was watching Dan Martin try to deal with that situation as the host of a thing. Like, God bless Dan. Oh like, my he, he's laughing along the whole time because he can see the irony of it and how funny it is to him. But at the same time, he's like, I need to figure out how to make, how do I kick this guy out? I, this is my first time using it. That was two months ago. But oh my God, that's, of course, uh, what are like people using the, 
use it, hacking into Zoom to say the N word is just like, we will not let this pandemic stop racism. <laughs> like, oh my God. Like, we are all the worst. Our, we're, our country is terrible. We have to fix it. We have to fix everything about it. That's a nightmare that people are like, I'm going to be racist whether or not there's a <laughs> pandemic and everyone's going to know how I feel. Like, no, no one wants to. Please stop. Please go away. Finally, racists can do their racism from home. <laughs> but no, so, it, you know, you've done a few of these things and I think your comedy style, I, it is different than being on stage. Um, yeah. Whether you're doing Facebook, Zoom, there's a new service called Rally.Video, which is great and wonderful. And it's the closest thing. Um, it's made by comedians, like just two comedians, a comedian and an improviser who also happen to be website developers in Canada, just made a whole new platform that is great and wonderful. Um, and, you know, it has a stage. You can hear the audience and all that stuff. So anyway, but you've done these things. I feel like you've, do you feel like you adapted well to them? Not only because of your experience as a comedian, but your style is very conversational and very loose. Um, do you feel like this medium worked well for your style of comedy? Yeah, I've liked doing the shows. It's a little nerve wracking. Um, but after I'm always like, oh, I'm so glad I did that. That was so fun. So I'm really happy to be able to do the shows. It's a way to stay connected to other comics and to make people laugh while they're cooped up at home. So I'm really happy about it. I'm glad we still have that as an option. And then after this, do you think, in your opinion, that this will be a thing that we continue to keep doing? Or do you think this will go as soon as we go back and comedy clubs all open, which there are already clubs that are open. But once we go back to comedy clubs that are open and life, whatever the new normal is going to be, do you think we're just going to completely forget about all of this? It was a bad nightmare and get rid of it. Or do you think it'll still be around afterwards? I think we'll go back to stages as soon as we can and then and completely get rid of the digital. yeah this is a great stopgap. it's not the same mm -hmm. but it's it's a great thing to be able to to bring comedy to people in a in a more limited way but but we're able to do it but nothing feels like being on stage and nothing feels like being in a live audience so i think we'll go back to that as soon as it's safe to do so i unfortunately think it's going to be one of the last things to come back because it's pretty damn near impossible to social distance safely during a comedy show but i hope we find a way and i hope we get it back sooner rather than later awesome all right emily uh i'm glad that we were able to connect with i'm glad that uh, you know let's give squadcast a shout out yeah because uh, i had my doubts about using their their software and stuff and it's i can very easily you know me i can very f easily find the negatives in anything and i could go on and on about them however they've been very minimal like i said there's been a couple issues that were quickly fixed and resolved yeah i um, like it i think it's easy for somebody user-friendly and that's what they designed to be very user-friendly and that's what i like i wanted to just do you know phone interviews and just so yes it sounds like a phone call deal with it but this is providing better audio and yep. a lot of things so i'm glad that squadcast is working out well and i'm glad that it was quick and easy for you and no problems at all yeah thanks for having me this was really fun i appreciate it Editor!